Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. These words of Jesus from the gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. One of the great tragedies of North American church life and worship in recent years, even in some Anglican church life and worship, is the way in which the ascension of our Lord has been neglected in liturgical life, in teaching and preaching, in our spirituality, in our lives of prayer. The liturgy of the Holy Eucharist makes clear the essential unity of Christ's mission and redemptive work which we celebrate in that sacrament, remembering his blessed passion and precious death, his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, and his promise to come again. Cross, resurrection, ascension, and return. These are the acts of Christ's saving work around which the church's liturgical life pivots. And we do pretty well at keeping most of them. Good Friday, Easter, the waiting for Christ coming again in Advent, but sometimes we're not quite sure what to do with Christ's ascension. Is it just how the Easter story ends? Christ having appeared to a sufficient amount of his followers after his resurrection concludes his ministry by abruptly departing, even if in the most spectacular way. Or, Is there something about the ascension itself that warrants our meditation? Does the ascension, in other words, mean anything for us? For most of the church's history, the ascension of our resurrected Lord to the right hand of the Father was of immense theological significance and was central to the church's liturgical life. In part, this is because the ascension of our Lord is crucial to the story the New Testament tells about the ministry and work of Jesus and his church. So we read today, both from the end of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. Both Luke and Acts, you might remember, are written by a single author and intended to be read together. One part and the second part. One, the mission of Christ and his church. Uh, One, the mission of Christ, and the other, the mission of his church. So begins Acts. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And indeed, this is how the Gospel of Luke ends. We read from it with Jesus being carried up into heaven and with the disciples returning to Jerusalem in great joy. But then Luke does something quite remarkable. He begins volume two by telling the story of the ascension again. We might think of it as the premiere of season two, which begins with a brief recap of where season one left off. For Luke, the the ascension is the link between volume one and two, between the ministry and redemptive work of Jesus and Luke and the mission of the church in Acts. But the ascension is much more than just a literary hinge of Luke-Acts. It is even more the theological crux which unites Christ's own work with the mission of the church, carried out in the power 
of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that Christ's ascension provides a kind of theatrical opening for the story of Acts. It's that if Jesus does not ascend to the right hand of the Father, then there is no Acts of the Apostles. The ascension of our Lord is the condition for the possibility of the church's mission and ministry. So, in order to understand why that's the case, I want to dwell just for a moment on two questions this evening. Two questions concerning the ascension of our Lord. The first one is pretty simple. Where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? And the second one is why is it good that he leaves? Now, the the answer to the first question is maybe deceivingly straightforward. We're told explicitly in Luke and Acts that Jesus was lifted up into heaven. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of ascending to the Father. And in the Nicene Creed, we confess that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But what does that mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Jesus dwells somewhere in the sky. Now, that point may seem obvious. We have, after all, been up there. We've explored the skies and even space, and we have yet to come across a celestial throne. And it's really important to understand this fact, because if Jesus had remained within the created universe, even in some elevated supraplanetary space, then he would not be in the dwelling place of God. Because God transcends God's creation. That's how God creates and sustains and redeems it. So heaven is the name for the place where God dwells and from which he rules. But nor does it mean that Jesus went to dwell in that sweet by and by where we'll spend eternity after leaving this wretched earth behind. Of course not. Because we know, as the angel told the apostles, that this Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way you saw him go. In other words, wherever Christ ascended to, the point is for him to come back. The point of the ascension is not that Jesus ascends to heaven to wait for us to come there, but that we await his return here. So the question we want to ask is, to where does Jesus ascend? But the better question, which the creed invites us to ask, is to whom does Jesus ascend? And the answer to that is, of course, the Father. Jesus ascends to the right hand of God the Father. I love what Hans Urs von Balthasar says about this. He says, That Jesus the resurrected ascends into heaven does not imply a geographical event, but rather a return to the starting place of his mission, now laden, however, with the whole harvest of the world that he reaped through his mission. It expresses the unprecedented elevation of human nature to the point of participation in the Father's majesty. That is the important point of Jesus' ascension. 
he returns to the heavenly dwelling of God, his rightful place of communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit in glory, but this time he takes something with him, our human nature. And this is why it is good that Jesus leaves us. It is for our benefit, he says, that he leaves in the Gospel of John. First and foremost, because in ascending to the Father, Jesus takes our humanity into the very life of God. The ascension shows us something unique about Christ's salvation that we might otherwise miss. It's not just that his death and resurrection redeem us from sin and undo the curse of death and conquer evil. It's not just that Christ's victory returns his people to the joy of creation's goodness and the blessedness of Eden's paradise. The ascension shows us that the destiny of redeemed humanity goes beyond that which is given in creation. In God's creation, humanity was made to dwell with God, but in Christ's ascension, in his taking our humanity into the love and communion of the triune life, we see that humanity was made to dwell in God, to participate in the communion and love and joy of the Holy Trinity, to partake of the divine nature. In his ascension, Christ does more than just redeem our humanity. He joins it permanently to the eternal life of the Godhead. It is good that Jesus leaves. It's good that Jesus leaves because at the right hand of the Father, he forever intercedes for us before the Father. Christ, our mediator and advocate, forever stands before the Father, bearing our very flesh, representing humanity to God and God to humanity. This is, as Hebrews puts it, our Lord's eternal priesthood. St. Thomas Aquinas writes that as the high priest under the Old Testament entered the holy place to stand before God for the people— so also Christ entered heaven to make intercession for us because the very showing of himself in the human nature which he took with him to heaven is itself a pleading for us, Aquinas says. His very showing of his humanity is a intercession for us. In the ascension, Christ takes his place as the one who eternally presents our humanity to the Father for mercy, for blessing, for restoration. It's good that Jesus leaves. It's good that Jesus leaves because his bodily absence is the condition for new forms of his abiding presence with us. Because it's from his ascended status as Lord transcending the constraints of space and time that Christ continually gives himself in the sacrament celebrated at every altar throughout history. Each and every celebration of the Holy Eucharist is a partaking of the body and blood of the one risen and ascended Lord who is seated at the right hand of the Father. It is 
in her celebration of this sacrament, in Christ's continual abiding presence with us in the Eucharist, that the church is joined to Christ's body and united to him. The church, the body of Christ on earth, is joined to the ascended Christ, her head, and so made a living continuation of Christ's presence on earth. Yes, in the ascension, the physical body of Jesus is taken away from us, taken from the earth into heaven. But this body is yet made present to God's creation in new forms now, the body of Christ, the Eucharist, and the body of Christ, the church. So it's good that Jesus leaves. And finally, it's good that Jesus leaves because in his ascending, he promises the Holy Spirit. It is good for me to leave, Jesus says in St. John's Gospel, for if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The ascension of Jesus, the completion of his earthly ministry, marks time, marks history. When he ascends to the Father and sits on his throne, Christ's work is perfected. That's why he can sit down. He sits in victory. From this point on, history, time, is simply a gift of God's providence in which the Holy Spirit works in and through God's church to bring Christ's redemption into concrete reality in the world. So if the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Christ's salvation, his incarnation and life, teaching, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, a story about how God's redemption is wrought, well, then Acts tells the story of the spirits weaving this redemption into the fabric of creation, renewing it and restoring its goodness. The gift and work of the spirit we will celebrate in just two Sundays from now, in that great feast of Pentecost. The ascension of our Lord prepares the way for Pentecost, prepares the way for the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is very good that Jesus leaves. A colleague of mine told me a while, a little while back, about a research project and forthcoming book that he was working on. The book takes up the doctrine of the ascension of Christ, and it explores the kind of trauma that this might have affected on our Lord's disciples. You might be able to sympathize. Losing their savior and friend to torture and death, then miraculously receiving him back in resurrection, only to suddenly lose him again 40 days later. I have no doubt that this whole process must have been profoundly wounding for the disciples, perhaps even devastatingly so. They were human beings, after all. They loved Jesus. All the doctrinal reasons in the world can't remove that bit of sorrow of losing your beloved. But notice how St. Luke describes the disciples after Jesus' parting. He says, And they returned to Jerusalem 
filled with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. The disciples know it's hard, but it is good that Jesus leaves. Good that he ascends to the Father. Good that he departs from us. For in ascending, he promises his abiding presence. He promises his spirit. He promises to come again. So let us rejoice in the ascended Lord Jesus, and may our hearts and minds also there ascend, and with him continually dwell. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.